Chapter Nineteen of the Old Curiosity Shop. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens. Chapter Nineteen. Supper was not yet over when there arrived at the Jolly Sandboys two more travellers bound for the same haven as the rest who had been walking in the rain for some hours, and came in shining and heavy with water. One of these was the proprietor of a giant, and a little lady without legs or arms, who had jogged forward in a van. The other, a silent gentleman, who earned his living by showing tricks upon the cards, and who had rather deranged the natural expression of his countenance, by putting small leaden lozenges into his eyes, and bringing them out at his mouth which is one of his professional accomplishments. The name of the first of these newcomers was Vuffin. The other, probably as a pleasant satire upon his ugliness, was called Sweet William. To render them as comfortable as he could, the landlord bestirred himself nimbly, and in a very short time both gentlemen were perfectly at their ease. "'How's the giant?' said Short, when they all sat smoking round the fire. "'Rather weak upon his legs,' returned Mr. Vuffin. "'I begin to be afraid he's going at the knees.' "'That's a bad look-out,' said Short. "'Aye, bad indeed,' replied Mr. Vuffin, contemplating the fire with a sigh. "'Once get a giant shaky upon his legs.' and the public care no more about him than they do for a dead cabbage-stalk. "'What becomes of old giants?' said Short, turning to him again after a little reflection. "'They're usually kept in caravans to wait upon the dwarfs,' said Mr. Vuffin. "'The maintain of em must come expensive when they can't be shown, eh?' remarked Short, eyeing him doubtfully. "'It's better that than letting him go upon the parish or about the streets,' said Mr. Vuffin. "'Once make a giant common, and giants will never draw again. Look at wooden legs. If there was only one man with a wooden leg, what a property he'd be!' "'So he would,' observed the landlord and Short both together. "'That's very true.' "'Instead of which—' pursued Mr. Vuffin. "'If you was to advertise Shakespeare, played entirely by wooden legs, it's my belief you wouldn't draw a sixpence.' "'I don't suppose you would,' said Short, and the landlord said so too. "'This shows, you see,' said Mr. Vuffin, waving his pipe with an argumentative air, "'this shows the policy of keeping the used-up giants still in the caravans.' where they get food and lodging for nothing all their lives, and in general very glad they ought to stop there. There was one giant, a blacken, as left his caravan some year ago, and took to carrying coach-bills about London, making himself as cheap as crossing sweepers. He died. I make no insinuation against anybody in particular, said Mr. Vuffin, looking solemnly around. But he was ruining the trade, and he died. The landlord drew his breath hard, and looked at the owner of the dogs, 
who nodded and said gruffly that he remembered. "'I know you do, Jerry,' said Mr. Vuffin, with profound meaning. "'I know you remember it, Jerry, and the universal opinion was that it served him right.' "'Why, I remember the time when old Maunders has had three-and-twenty ones. "'I remember the time when old Maunders had in his cottage in Sparfields in the winter-time, "'when the season was over, eight male and female dwarfs sitting down to dinner every day, "'who was waited on by eight old giants in green coats, red smalls, blue cotton stockings,' and high-lows, and there was one dwarf as had grown elderly and wishes, whenever his giant wasn't quick enough to please him, used to stick pins in his legs, not being able to reach up any higher. I know that's a fact, for Maunders told it me himself. "'What about the dwarves when they get old?' inquired the landlord. "'The older a dwarf is, the better worth he is,' returned Mr. Fuffin. "'A grey-headed dwarf, well-wrinkled, is beyond all suspicion. But a giant weak in the legs and not standing upright, keep him in the caravan, but never show him, never show him, for any persuasion that can be offered.' While Mr. Vuffin and his two friends smoked their pipes and beguiled the time with such conversation as this, the silent gentleman sat in a warm corner, swallowing, or seeming to swallow, six pennyworth of halfpence for practice, balancing a feather upon his nose, and rehearsing other feats of dexterity of that kind, without paying any regard whatever to the company, who in their turn left him utterly unnoticed. At length the weary child prevailed upon her grandfather to retire, and they withdrew, leaving the company yet seated round the fire, and the dogs fast asleep at a humble distance. After bidding the old man good-night, Nell retired to her poor garret, but had scarcely closed the door when it was gently tapped at. She opened it directly, and was a little startled by the sight of Mr. Thomas Codlin, whom she had left, to all appearance, fast asleep downstairs. "'What is the matter?' said the child. "'Nothing's the matter, my dear,' returned her visitor. "'I'm your friend. Perhaps you haven't thought so. But it's me that's your friend, not him.' "'Not who?' the child inquired. "'Short, my dear. I'll tell you what,' said Codlin. "'For all his having a kind of way with him that you'd be very apt to like, I'm the real open-hearted man. I mayn't look it.' but I am indeed." The child began to be alarmed, considering that the ale had taken effect upon Mr. Codlin, and that this commendation of himself was the consequence. "'Short's very well, and seems kind,' resumed the misanthrope, "'but he overdoes it. Now I don't.' Certainly, if there were any fault in Mr. Codlin's usual deportment, it was that he rather underdid his kindness to those about him than overdid it. But the child was puzzled, and could not tell what to say. "'Take my advice,' said Codlin. "'Don't ask me why, but take it. As long as you travel with us, keep as near me as you can. Don't offer to leave us, not on any account. 
but always stick to me, and say that I'm your friend. Will you bear that in mind, my dear, and always say that it was me that was your friend? Say so where, and when? inquired the child innocently. Oh, uh, nowhere in particular, replied Codlin, a little put out, as it seemed, by the question. I'm only anxious that you should think me so, and do me justice. You can't think what an interest I have in you. Why didn't you tell me your little history, that about you and the poor old gentleman? I'm the best adviser that ever was, and so interested in you, so much more interested than short. I think they're breaking up downstairs. You needn't tell short, you know, that we've had this little talk together. God bless you. Recollect the friend. Codlin's the friend, not short. Short's very well, as far as he goes, but the real friend is Codlin, not short. Eking out these professions of the number of benevolent and protecting looks and great fervour of manner, Thomas Codlin stole away on tiptoe, leaving the child in a state of extreme surprise. She was still ruminating upon his curious behaviour, when the floor of the crazy stairs and landing cracked beneath the tread of the other travellers who were passing to their beds. When they had all passed, and the sound of their footsteps had died away, one of them returned, and after a little hesitation and rustling in the passage, as if you were doubtful what door to knock at, knocked at hers. "'Yes,' said the child from within. "'It's me, short,' a voice called through the keyhole. "'I only wanted to say that we must be off early to-morrow morning, my dear, because unless we get the start of the dogs and the conjurer, the villagers won't be worth a penny. You'll be sure to be stirring early and go with us. I'll call you.' The child answered in the affirmative, and, returning his good-night, heard him creep away. She felt some uneasiness at the anxiety of these men, increased by the recollection of their whispering together downstairs, and their slight confusion when she awoke, nor was she quite free from a misgiving that they were not the fittest companions she could have stumbled on. Her uneasiness, however, was nothing weighed against her fatigue, and she soon forgot it in sleep. Very early next morning, Short fulfilled his promise, and knocking softly at her door, entreated that she would get up directly, as the proprietor of the dogs was still snoring, and if they lost no time they might get a good deal in advance both of him and the conjurer, who was talking in his sleep, and from what he could be heard to say appeared to be balancing a donkey in his dreams. She started from her bed without delay, and roused the old man with so much expedition that they were both ready as soon as Short himself, to that gentleman's unspeakable gratification and relief. After a very unceremonious and scrambling breakfast, of which the staple commodities were bacon and bread and beer, they took leave of the landlord, and issued from the door of the jolly sandboys. The morning was fine and warm, the ground cool to the feet after the late rain, the hedges gayer and more green, the air clear, and everything fresh and healthful. Surrounded by these influences, they walked on pleasantly enough. They had not gone very far, when the child was again struck by the altered behaviour of Mr. Thomas Codlin, who, instead of plodding on sulkily by himself, as he had heretofore done, kept close to her, and when he had an opportunity of looking at her unseen by his companion, warned her by certain wry faces and jerks of the head not to put any trust in short, 
but to reserve all confidences for Codlin. Neither did he confine himself to looks and gestures, for when she and her grandfather were walking on beside the aforesaid short, and that little man was talking with his accustomed cheerfulness on a variety of indifferent subjects, Thomas Codlin testified his jealousy and distrust by following close at her heels, and occasionally admonishing her ankles with the legs of the theatre in a very abrupt and painful manner. All these proceedings naturally made the child more watchful and suspicious, and she soon observed that whenever they halted to perform outside a village, ale-house, or other place, Mr. Codlin, while he went through his share of the entertainments, kept his eye steadily upon her and the old man, or with a show of great friendship and consideration invited the latter to lean upon his arm, and so held him tight until the representation was over, and they again went forward. Even Short seemed to change in this respect, and to mingle with his good nature something of a desire to keep them in safe custody. This increased the child's misgivings, and made her yet more anxious and uneasy. Meanwhile they were drawing near the town where the races were to begin next day, for from passing numerous groups of gipsies and trampers on the road, wending their way towards it, and straggling out from every byway and cross-country lane, they gradually fell into a stream of people, some walking by the side of covered carts, others with horses, others with donkeys, others toiling on with heavy loads upon their backs, but all tending to the same point. The public houses by the wayside, from being empty and noiseless as those in the remoter parts had been, now sent out boisterous shouts and clouds of smoke, and from the misty windows clusters of broad red faces looked down upon the road. On every piece of waste or common ground, some small gambler drove his noisy trade, and bellowed to the idle passers-by to stop and try their chance. The crowd grew thicker and more noisy. Gilt gingerbread and blanket stalls exposed its glories to the dust, and often a four-horse carriage, dashing by, obscured all objects in the gritty cloud it raised, and left them stunned and blinded far behind. It was dark before they reached the town itself, and long indeed the few last miles had been. Here all was tumult and confusion. The streets were filled with throngs of people. Many strangers were there, it seemed, by the looks they cast about. The church bells rang out their noisy peals, and flags streamed from windows and housetops. In the large inn-yards waiters flitted to and fro, and ran against each other. Horses clattered on the uneven stones, Carriage steps fell rattling down, and sickening smells from many dinners came in a heavy, lukewarm breath upon the sense. In the smaller public-houses, fiddles with all their might and main were squeaking out the tune to staggering feet. Drunken men, oblivious of the burden of their song, joined in a senseless howl, which drowned the tinkling of the feeble bell, and made them savage for their drink. Vagabond groups assembled round the doors to see the stroller woman dance, and add their uproar to the shrill flagellette and deafening drum. Through this delirious scene, the child, frightened and repelled by all she saw, led on her bewildered charge, clinging close to her conductor, and trembling lest in the press she should be separated from him, and left to find her way alone. Quickening their steps to get clear of all the roar and riot, they at length passed through the town and made for the race-course, which was upon an open heath, situated on an eminence a full mile distant from its furthest bounds. Although there were many people here, 
none of the best-favoured or best-clad, busily erecting tents and driving stakes in the ground, and hurrying to and fro with dusty feet and many a grumbled oath. Although there were tired children cradled on heaps of straw between the wheels of carts, crying themselves to sleep, and poor lean horses and donkeys just turned loose, grazing among the men and women, and pots and kettles and half-lighted fires, and ends of candles flaring and wasting in the air, for all this the child felt it an escape from the town, and drew her breath more freely. After a scanty supper, the purchase of which reduced her little stock so low, that she had only a few halfpence with which to buy a breakfast on the morrow, she and the old man lay down to rest in a corner of a tent, and slept, despite the busy preparations that were going on around them all night long. And now they had come to the time when they must beg their bread. Soon after sunrise in the morning she stole out from the tent, and rambling into some fields at a short distance, plucked a few wild roses and such humble flowers, purposing to make them into little nosegays, and offer them to the ladies in the carriages when the company arrived. Her thoughts were not idle while she was thus employed. When she returned and was seated beside the old man in one corner of the tent, tying her flowers together, while the two men lay dozing in another corner, she plucked him by the sleeve, and slightly glancing towards them, said in a low voice, "'Grandfather, don't look at those I talk of, and don't seem as if I spoke of anything but what I am about. What was that you told me before we left the old house? That if they knew what we were going to do, they would say that you were mad, and part us?' The old man turned to her with an aspect of wild terror, but she checked him by a look, and bidding him hold some flowers while she tied them up, and so bringing her lips closer to his ear, said, "'I know that was what you told me. You needn't speak, dear. I recollect it very well. It was not likely that I should forget it. Grandfather, these men suspect that we have secretly left our friends, and mean to carry us before some gentleman, and have us taken care of and sent back.' If you let your hand tremble so, we can never get away from them. But if you're only quiet now, we shall do so easily." "'How?' muttered the old man. "'Dear Nelly, how? They will shut me up in a stone room, dark and cold, and chain me up to the wall, Nell, flog me with whips, and never let me see thee more.' "'You're trembling again.' said the child. Keep close to me all day. Never mind them. Don't look at them, but me. I shall find a time when we can steal away. When I do, mind you come with me, and do not stop or speak a word. Hush! That's all." "'Halloa! What are you up to, my dear?' said Mr. Codlin, raising his head and yawning. Then, observing that his companion was fast asleep, he added in an earnest whisper, Codlin's the friend, remember, not short. "'Making some nosegays,' the child replied. "'I'm going to try and sell some these three days of the races. Will you have one, as a present, I mean?' Mr. Codlin would have risen to receive it, but the child hurried towards him, and placed it in his hand. He stuck it in his buttonhole, with an air of ineffable complacency for a misanthrope, and leering exultingly at the unconscious short, muttered as he laid himself down again, "'Tom Codlin's the friend, by God!' 
As the morning wore on, the tents assumed a gayer and more brilliant appearance, and long lines of carriages came rolling softly on the turf. Men who had lounged about all night in smock-frocks and leather leggings came out in silken vests and hats and plumes, as jugglers or mountebanks, or in gorgeous liveries as soft-spoken servants at gambling-booths, or in sturdy yeoman dress as decoys at unlawful games. Black-eyed gypsy girls, hooded in showy handkerchiefs, sallied forth to tell fortunes, and pale, slender women, with consumptive faces, lingered upon the footsteps of ventriloquists and conjurers, and counted the sixpences with anxious eyes long before they were gained. As many of the children as could be kept within bounds were stowed away, with all the other signs of dirt and poverty, among the donkeys, carts, and horses, and as many as could not be thus disposed of ran in and out in all intricate spots, crept between people's legs and carriage-wheels, and came forth unharmed from under horses' hoofs. The dancing dogs, the stilts, the little lady and the tall man, and all the other attractions, with organs out of number and bands innumerable, emerged from the holes and corners in which they had passed the night, and flourished boldly in the sun. Along the uncleared course, Short led his party, sounding the brazen trumpet and revelling in the voice of punch, and at his heels went Thomas Codlin, bearing the show as usual, and keeping his eye on Nellie and her grandfather as they rather lingered in the rear. The child bore upon her arm the little basket with her flowers, and sometimes stopped with timid and modest looks to offer them at some gay carriage. But alas, there were many bolder beggars there, gypsies who promised husbands and other adepts in their trade, and although some ladies smiled gently as they shook their heads, and others cried to the gentleman beside them, See what a pretty face! They let the pretty face pass on, and never thought that it looked tired or hungry. There was but one lady, who seemed to understand the child, and she was one who sat alone in a handsome carriage, while two young men in dashing clothes, who had just dismounted from it, talked and laughed loudly at a little distance, appearing to forget her quite. There were many ladies all around, but they turned their backs, or looked another way, or at the two young men, not unfavourably at them, and left her to herself. She motioned away a gypsy woman, urgent to tell her fortune, saying that it was told already, and had been for some years, but called the child towards her, and taking her flowers, put money into her trembling hand, and bade her go home, and keep it home for God's sake. Many a time they went up and down those long, long lines, seeing everything but the horses and the race, when the bell rang to clear the course, going back to rest among the carts and donkeys, and not coming out again until the heat was over. Many a time, too, was punch displayed in the full zenith of his humour, but all this while the eye of Thomas Codlin was upon them, and to escape without notice was impracticable. At length, late in the day, Mr. Codlin pitched the show in a convenient spot, and the spectators were soon in the very triumph of the scene. The child, sitting down with the old man close behind it, had been thinking how strange it was that horses, who were such fine, honest creatures, should seem to make vagabonds of all the men they drew about them, when a loud laugh at some extemporaneous witticism of Mr. Short's, having allusion to the circumstances of the day, roused her from her meditation, and caused her to look around. If they were ever to get away unseen, that was the very moment. 
Short was plying the quarter-staves vigorously, and knocking the characters in the fury of the combat against the sides of the show. The people were looking on with laughing faces, and Mr. Codlin had relaxed into a grim smile, as his roving eye detected hands going into waistcoat pockets, and groping secretly for sixpences. If they were ever to get away unseen, that was the very moment. They seized it, and fled. They made a path through booths and carriages and throngs of people, and never once stopped to look behind. The bell was ringing, and the course was cleared by the time they reached the ropes, but they dashed across it insensible to the shouts and screeching that assailed them for breaking in upon its sanctity, and creeping under the brow of the hill at a quick pace, made for the open fields. End of chapter 19